What's up guys, Luke here. This week we've got a very special guest, Dominique Kemp. Dominique is one of our favorite um, favorite guests we've had on the Shark Pod so far. I uh, hope you enjoy this <laughs> this hour-long episode where we've packed a lot in. Um, Dominique is the founder of uh, It's a Bagel, as well as many, many other uh, restaurant brands, Joe's Coffee, um, Alchemy, Juice Co., as, uh, as well as being an author. Um, the book that we talk about in this particular episode is The Ketogenic Kitchen um, that came from, came from I guess, her frustration around diet and her cancer survival story that we dig into as well. So if you're interested in starting new businesses, if you're interested in, <laughs> interested in writing books, if you're interested in uh, how to survive multiple recessions uh, and keep thriving, this is the one for you. Um, you can find uh, Dominique at, at Dominique Kemp. Uh, on Instagram and Twitter, uh, well worth a follow. Um, and the book is The Ketogenic uh, Kitchen, uh, written with her co-author that I'll put in the show notes because I can't remember right now. All right, hope you enjoy this one. Bye. Welcome to The Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Uh, this week, uh, you're, you're very welcome to our, the Shark Pod this week. Um, this this week is very important to us as well because it's going to be uh, kind of a, a different type of guest that we've had before. Um, we've got uh, Dominique Kemp on the line here. We're doing it over Zoom still because we're all still uh, isolating and all that type of stuff. We had a bit of a chat about the COVID, got that out of the way before we started recording today. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to skip all that. We're going to dig into uh, Dominique's story. Uh, Dominique um, has been working in the the restaurant industry for in Ireland for a long, long time. Everyone who's listening to this that's in Ireland, I'm sure that you, that Domini has uh, served <laughs> served you guys along the <laughs> yeah. way at some stage, um, <laughs> because uh, I guess it's a uh, and the um, the spinoffs from that, uh, all the different brands. Um, you've been yes. in business for about twenty years, right? That's right. Yeah, it could, it's uh, we celebrated our twentieth year in business at round last November, and actually. The night before the lockdown started, we actually had our 20th anniversary birthday party, staff party, Christmas party, and oh. then the next day it all kind of came to a grinding halt. So oh. we had one last hurrah before wow. it all thankfully, shut down. Thankfully, you got it in yeah. uh, just before. Yeah, exactly. We, or else you'd be doing a Zoom, Zoom drinks, uh, which I've done yeah. recently, which, you know what, Mark, it's not the same, you know, than no. people straight away. I think people are getting very competitive with these quizzes as well. Oh, you know, the combination of drink and... Uh, quizzes i don't know if it's a good thing i know well it's just it's uh we haven't done anything like that but uh we're kind of imagining how it all works and then we thought like that's um if you're doing a zoom dinner party how do you leave without appearing really rude so i was like you know can you can you have a set time how do yeah. you how do you sort of anchor this i don't know but uh yeah Dominique, I'm a bit terrified. but if somebody if somebody invites you to to one on say friday night how do you say no uh, i'm, I'm see, not yeah, yeah I'm busy <laughs> no what do you do dominate your career 100 correct there is no irish goodbye uh, over zoom <laughs> maybe yeah. yes exactly i'm just yeah filling me with too much fear so yeah. I've, I've preempted it by saying yeah we're not doing it <laughs> absolutely and you know I, I was accused of of um of sarah grapes the other day because i lost a, a quiz and then it was my zoom link so when i left it ended it for everybody and people were like that's <laughs> oh gonna, you know oh that, okay that's not cool you know i get it um <laughs> uh, okay so anyway um so it's a uh, started about 20 years ago just over 20 yes. years ago um, we'd love to talk about that a little bit. Um, I, so bagels was the first was the first kind of iteration of this, and then it kind of evolved into more of a cafe, kind of offering different things. Um, I'm a huge fan of bagels generally. I went to New York on my honeymoon. I ate my weight in bagels from those little uh, <laughs> kind of stands. Um, so I I was all in on that. But what kind of what was the inspiration there? Where did that come from? You and your sister, I believe, uh, started that. That's right. Yeah. So we had we had um, again, like I said, always love bagels, and um, you know we both worked in the states, and we were born that kind of side of the world, and and so on, and and you know back when we started, it was uh, the late nineties, and um, you know you have to remember it was hard to get a decent sandwich back then you know you couldn't really get decent takeout coffee or anything it was really really different the, the food scene in Ireland was was really pretty um grim in terms of the kind of casual market and um I guess you know I'd come through a sort of fine dining 
Michelin star background that it kind of ended that chapter and you know we wanted to do something daytime my my daughter at the time was just one and a half so we wanted to kind of do something really daytime but very gourmet uh, and a bit more like something you might find in New York um, and uh, I guess that's where it started but I mean I, mean, I, I went to New York and I went to H&H um, so H&H bagels were you know, they're featured on Friends, they're featured on Sex and the City, okay. and they were the only ones geared to export. Um, and they'd freeze the bagels, and they'd ship worldwide, and they'd arrive over in a frozen container. So you're getting, directly them, you're getting them directly from New York? Like from legitimate, New York, uh, yeah. We were importing them at the time, and you, you could either buy 40,000 or 80,000 in one container, or half uh-huh. or full container. And, um, you know, these two guys... Puerto Rican, right? Helmer and Hector, H and H. Um, and uh, so they were basically like, yeah, you know, you pay us the money, we'll shift the bagels, that's all fine. So we did it and they arrived in Dublin and we'd secured a premises, but we were kind of like, oh God, what do we do? And if this is a disaster, we have 80,000 bagels on the docks. Like, you know, it was, it was suddenly the enormity of what had happened because I'd sold a house that I'd taken 50 grand profit from, uh, from a house that I probably never should have got a mortgage for, but you know, yeah. hell, it was the nineties. They get a mortgage with just a phone call. And, uh, so, uh, we took that money and that's what we used to invest uh, in the business. And it really just started from, from there and kind of, you know, then we got a second location and then we started doing outdoor catering and started doing dinner parties and then weddings and corporate events. And then new brands came and restaurant opportunities came. So, we ended up, you know, sort of going from, from one tiny 256 square unit to, you know, 150 staff, 12 to 14 locations doing, you know, coffee, juices, whole foods, cafes, restaurants, corporate weddings, all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it's grown slowly and, you know, organically as kind of overused term in, in business, but it really has, I suppose. It's so interesting as well, because it's, a lot of the people we've talked to on this uh, on this podcast has been a lot of the a lot of the entrepreneurs we talked to. It's they started small. It was almost like a side hustle that kind of evolved into um, the main thing. But you're, it seems like you're going all in. You're calling Hector. You're like, send the bagels. We'll sell them. We'll figure it out later. Just get them on. Like, get them down to the docks. Which totally. I think, and you know that's that's a thing like that. That, that that it's sort of that age. You know, I'm in my mid twenties, and there there is always this this thing. And I mean, I remember all everyone at the time was just saying, you're crazy, don't do this and stuff. And the thing is that, you know, it's usually accountants who are telling you not to do it because Sorry, they're Mark. too chicken to kind of open businesses. A lot of them are, they're not entrepreneurial. So you're, you're and you know, I was going to do this no matter what, like it just, nothing was going to stop us. And, you know, that's, you need that kind of slight madness and insanity to get over the hump because you're going to have so many people saying, just get a job, just get a job. Yeah. What are you doing? Um, and, you know, it was, it was funny because we, we had a good relationship with, uh, with H&H for years. And then the Iraq war happened. And interestingly, um, we, we actually, our whole supply chain was really thrown into jeopardy because the U.S. government just sort of hijacked all shipping to, you know, to, for their troops and stuff. So suddenly we were left nearly without supply. We were down to our last few, few boxes. And we realized actually how... Um, you know, vulnerable we were in terms of supply. And it was really at that point that we started making uh, inquiries to see would anyone partner with us over here. But, you know, at that point, it was kind of coming into Celtic Tigerland and no one really had the time or the inclination. Um, and then the recession hit and uh, McCluskey's, who's a brilliant third generation bakery out in Drawda, they kind of came to us and said, actually, we would be interested in speaking to you. So we managed to, to six months of prototypes and getting all the kit from Germany and doing all this but we had this awful agreement with H&H in terms of breaking the supply but actually they ended up going to prison for tax evasion for employees perfect, so. perfect for us in that case I like so, the, like, like, it's one of these awful agreements that I was like oh my god I'm gonna go to prison yes. in New York and yeah. stuff if we break this supplier's <laughs> agreement and then he ended up cocking it up all for you all on himself oh, wow. so it actually worked out really well in the end that's you know it's 
you can't plan for these types of things but you just got to roll with it i guess and uh yeah know, i hope whatever he's doing right now it's uh, working out well for him but it's good that, that <laughs> it's good that worked <laughs> out for you um because this is the the supply chain is such a interesting topic right now because a lot of people are being impacted by that obviously um but the when you go from so is that still uh, the people in uh Drahada, are they still uh the yes okay so that was a yeah. long-term play then with those guys yeah yeah totally and we just had a We'd have, we've just had a lovely relationship that was just, it was nearly just on a handshake and, and sort no of, we just said, look, no. if, if you yeah. supply us, it's fine. And you, uh, you know, if you want to sell them on to other people, that's, that's absolutely grand, you know, and, and they worked really hard, I suppose, to, to get the, the, the kind of cooking methodology right, because, you know, traditional bagels, you boil them first and then bake them. And a lot of kind of cheaper brands, they tend to steam them and then they, they have oil and stuff in the ingredients. So it's a cheaper process, you know, whereas you need that kind of heaviness that comes from the, the boiling and then the baking uh, to uh, to get your really kind of authentic product. Absolutely. And so at that time, so let's, if we go back to the timeline, I know uh, Mark has lots of questions too, but I love, I just love hearing the kind of ins and outs of where, where it is now and where we, how we got there, right? So you're in 1999 or so, the, the, the journey starts, you're, you're getting bagels directly from the Puerto Ricans. They, they're supplying you guys. <laughs> you're growing your business uh, uh, one at a time. When was, what was the first uh, location? So it was in the Epicurean Food Hall. Uh, so it was actually yeah. over on Liffey Street. It's now done deal thing. It's, it's a totally I remember it well, yeah. Do you remember it? Yeah. You look yeah, too yeah. young to remember it. And yeah. um, so it was, uh, it was a, probably a little bit before its time. There were some really great operators at the start. Uh, Mark Michel, the organic store Cavistons, you know, from out in Glassdool. They had this amazing fish counter and a kind of tap space. There were some really good units there. And it was just probably a little bit too soon, maybe on the wrong side of town. That whole area hadn't really been very well developed. So it was still pretty rough at nighttime. Um, and, you know, it, it probably would have done better if it was, you know, in a posh south side suburb somewhere, um, just in terms of having a kind of food hall. But it, it was a good start and it was a tiny unit. We did everything there on site. Um, and then our second location was out in Dunleary, which we still have. Um, and there we had a much bigger kitchen. And so we moved the kitchen there and started producing for both units in terms of all the fillings and so on. Then we got a third unit on Fitzwilliam Lane. And then gradually we got a larger commercial kitchen and the Spade Enterprise Center. So we were always kind of growing and developing. And, and I suppose, um, but it did happen slowly. You know, that, that's the thing. We have been in business 20 years. It wasn't like uh, we suddenly got a couple of million quid and could kind of explode can, yeah. onto the scene. But it was... I think in those early days, um, you know, probably I, I, if I'm mentoring or giving any advice to young people starting up in terms of startup costs, I think we probably, um, we, we got kitchen facilities that were possibly a little bit too big for us at the okay. time. Uh, so we had to kind of catch up and grow into those facilities, if you know what I mean. So I always try and tell people, you know, try and really wait until you're sort of really bursting out of the seams before you go spending big money on that next uh on that next step you want to really sweat the capacity in in existing locations that's it's sort of important so we had you know a few years of, of playing catch-up and and just the financial strain of of running a big kitchen you know you can also make the mistake of thinking oh we have more space and we can yeah. do things nice and easier but actually sometimes that just really elongates processes it makes you less efficient you've more place to clean you need more staff to run it you know it's it's not bigger isn't always better it's so interesting as well because i'd imagine you came from that like you said that michelin star uh you know background where you know the the uh, i don't know that much about it but um the food like the food quality has to be like top top uh of, of exactly but then then you go into this business and then processes become almost as important right oh like scale, critical you know? critical and and you know you're you're your margins are so much smaller so the efficiencies become so much more impactful and then you know when your business is small as well it, it's just you and 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 like it was just me and peaches running it and stuff and you, you do everything yourselves and, and so on and then as you grow and suddenly your your turnover starts getting bigger and bigger you start realizing you know 10 10 percent 
you know, didn't seem a big deal back then. And, and suddenly 0.1% becomes a huge deal, you know yeah. what I mean, in terms of savings. So again, that could be difficult to learn when you start off so small where everything's fine. It's, you know, it, it, it's one thing, but your systems become so critical as you grow. And I think um, that's always a hard thing. You know, it's having to re-engineer and redo once you've got to a certain size. It can be really, really difficult. And like last year, for example, we had changed our whole EPOS system and our whole stock control and everything. And it's just like the pain of it was just unbearable. You know, it was a project that should have taken three months and it was sort of a year later. We were still trying to to join all the dots. So um, uh, again, you know, it, it, you, you don't want to feel vain and, and maybe kind of, you know, getting notions when you start. But at the same time, you know what, you kind of need to. And I think we probably never imagined we'd get to where we were. It just kind of happened. Um, and I think I try and tell people, you know, get your systems right from day one. And if that means investing in, in, in different, whether it's, it's stock control or different accounts packages or anything, just nail it from day one. You don't know how big you're going to be. And it's better to have planned I'm prepared for that rather than, than play catch up. That's great advice, and as well, Mike. You, you imagine obviously Peaches started with you right yes. from the start. What's what's the dynamic like between the two? How different are you? Was one person more, you know, business focused or a person more passionate about the food? Is there any key differences between you? Yeah, I think we're we're a really good mix. Like Peaches would, would be, you know, she stops me spending money. Um, I fight with her all the time to spend money. And uh, so I would definitely be the one kind of pushing and driving the business forward. Peaches keeps me in check and, and keeps me in line. Um, and I think what, what, again, what you find is, you know, we were sisters first and foremost. I'm very, very close. You know, clearly you guys, as, as, as you family connections and stuff, and sometimes you have to keep those separate. So we would, we always had a really good shareholders agreement from the very start. And again, I would think that's really important plan for the divorce. And then you don't need to worry about it. You stick yeah. that in a drawer and you never have to look at it. But at least you've planned for a, a problem uh, later on and, and even an intergenerational problem. You know, if I croaked it and like, you know, you just, just be practical about those things. And then I think, when a business is small, you can tend to look over what the other one's doing and say, oh, you know, you've got the easier job there. And actually, I, that becomes much easier as, as a business uh, gets bigger. But I would say the discipline of making sure that your roles are very clear, even from staff's point of view, so that, you know, mum and dad aren't fighting. You know, you don't want to be doing that in front of staff. It, it's yeah. really important front. that, um, yeah, you, we are united we certainly have big scraps and we certainly go at it. Um, but it's always with the good of the business at its heart. And really the best idea should win. And at the same time, we do, we, we are very close and we hang out a lot, you know, outside of work. So we always try and make sure that, that we, our whole conversations aren't dominated by work either, that we, that we do maintain the relationship. That, that is also really critical. But we did get some mentoring a few years ago. Uh, just again, we've got into bad habits of sort of doing bits for each other that really we should have been staying in our own lanes. So, and it, it, it wasn't out of, of bad intentions or anything. And it, it wasn't laziness, just kind of obliging each other and doing bits and pieces and actually getting that discipline back and actually having direct responsibility for more specific things was really good to do. And again, I'd really recommend that. Absolutely. Sounds good to me. Um, when this is okay. So we're, in the in the timeline where um, you guys are, you, know, you and your sister are working really well together. Things are going well. Two thousand. I remember two thousand seven, just before the the crash. I was selling. Uh, just to set the scene, I was selling uh, mobile phones um, in an O two shop, um, <laughs> and uh, and this is just just that that month um, that the the original iPhone came out. That's how that's how that's wow. around that time. Um, they. I remember reading in the paper that, you know, Lehman Brothers had collapsed. And I was like, I'd only known Ireland to be a land of opportunity growing up. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of people around me were saying that this is just, you know, <laughs> going back to just normal, I guess. But at that stage, yeah. was there, when, when things started to contract a little bit, did you guys feel that first? Because a lot of people are unemployed, so daytime eating out isn't as, uh, you know, it, did it feel straight away or was it a prolonged thing because of austerity? What was the, what was the vibe there? 
it, it felt like who could hold their breath for the longest. And that's honestly what it felt like. And I mean, we actually doubled in size as a company. We decided the only way we could we could survive was to grow because sales dropped by 50%. So we kind of maintained our turnover by doubling our footprint. But with that then, obviously, very slim down margins. So we centralized a lot of stuff at that point in terms of rosters, purchasing, and the accountant, the financial controller probably became the most important person in the business. Um, most things I wanted to do, I wasn't allowed to do. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, it just, it was a really difficult time. Now, in saying that, it was also a time that, you know, in 2012, we managed to open up Hatch and Sons. And Hatch and Sons was really, uh, I suppose, um, celebrating everything that was good about Irish food in a very casual daytime setting. And at the time, there was so much work being done by Falter Ireland, you know, staycations, support yeah. Irish and everything. And if, if you imagine up until this point um, of sort of during the Celtic Tiger years, everyone wanted everything that was foreign and exotic yeah. and not yeah. Irish, you know. Everyone's on and then Alp suddenly, say that yeah. again. Everyone's on Alp Duez or, you know, yes, Chamonix. Yes, yeah, exactly, things, exactly. And, and then there was this absolute sort of pivot to look back inwards um, and to suddenly go, wait, we we have all this amazing produce, we have all these amazing suppliers and artisans in the country, and actually we need to be celebrating a lot more and, and prouder of what we're able to do as, as a country and, and as a food nation. Um, so we found, I think, our confidence during the recession as, as a country and certainly with the, the sort of chefs and restaurant opening. So it was an amazing time on the one hand, and um, very difficult on the other, but uh, sort of, you know, and, and, and that's what you, you find, uh, this sort of creativity and, and artists and, and all these amazing things can happen when, when there is austerity. And, there, you know, it, it's you get a lot more interesting creativity exploding as a result. So I think that's what happened. And, um, you know, definitely we, we benefited from that because Hatch, Hatch and Sons could never have opened up in the Celtic Tiger years. People would be like, Ugh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they would be like, you know, what's, what's that Irish stuff? Get out of here. Get, yeah. me, here, get me a crap. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Uh, okay. So that was the, maybe, how did you guys kind of get into that? So things started to get moving, I guess, out of the 2012, 2013. And then yes. was it, did somebody come to you with a concept? Did somebody, was it something that you had like a, you know, a, a inspiration to go do or wanted to do get back into the kind of Irish food rather than the New York style bagel place? Yeah, well, I think at that stage we'd, we'd opened up, um, uh, we'd Hatch and Sons, we'd Feast Catering. And then in 2013, I got breast cancer. And I suppose my, my whole idea of what healthy eating was really like just totally shifted and you know in 2015 um brought out uh, a cookbook with my co-author the ketogenic kitchen looking at low carb and ketogenic and so for me as somebody that had been importing bagels to suddenly <laughs> turn around and be like ah um that was that was really interesting actually and again meant that we really worked on making sure there were kind of better options for people regardless of what diet they were going to follow across the board but it meant that we were um, we opened up Alchemy Juice Co. and we opened them in BT2 uh, before it closed down on Grafton Street. And the idea was really coming up with something that was uh, could appeal to whatever sort of food religion you were yeah. following, uh, whether it was vegan, you know, keto, low carb, paleo, uh, low fat. Um, you know, it, it was important to to be able to offer that in a kind of casual environment. And um, so I, I really. Alchemy was my real baby at the time. Then Joe's Coffee was specialty coffee. And we opened up that the, the following year and stuff. So it, it was kind of getting into different brands that I felt was um, more relevant in terms of looking at, 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 at really our own population. And so many people had left during the recession and were coming back and just demanding and expecting more. And I think that we, we really tried to, to appeal to that demographic. So interesting because I, I was one of those people who things I had left college, things were a little bit tough at the time. Um, I was actually, I got a job working in Davy Stockbrokers. It was not for me. Um, so, yeah. I, so I left and went to Canada for a few years. Um, but when I came back, I noticed, so that time, the timeline is kind of overlapping uh, with my experience as well. So I came back and I couldn't, I couldn't believe 
how the giant leap forward that casual dining yeah. had taken in Ireland. I couldn't believe it. It was like, because, you know, when you're in Vancouver, East Van, very hipster, very like you can go get some Ethiopian food uh, for exactly. lunch. Or yeah. you know I mean? And uh, <laughs> when I came home, all those things were were on, on my, I was living in town at the time um, and everything was on my doorstep there. Um, and yeah. it's it's so interesting what you said earlier on um, uh, about the, the food hall thing. That was way ahead of its time. When you said that, I, I realized ahead. that. I was down in this year. I've been in Madrid and I've been in uh, Portugal, and they've got these kind of food hall things as well. And they were packed with people. Everyone's packed, drinking wine. Yeah. It's so nice. You get a little bit uh, from here and there. And it's such a pity what happened to that food hall because I remember like it did kind of take a turn. There was some things were closed down. There was a delicious Turkish place that I used to go to there. That's right. <laughs> you know? They were they were fantastic. You know? And it, it just, it was unfortunate. And it was, it, again, it was a sort of almost a product of, of Celtic Tiger greed. You know, the landlord just, the rent started going up and up and up. Yeah. And unfortunately, the, the better operators couldn't afford the increases and they just gradually, you know, started started hitting walls. And then, you know, very, very cheap food. There's good margin because you're really selling rubbish at, at sort of okay prices. And um, there's, a, there's a much bigger margin to make on your food costs. And uh, so unfortunately, it sort of it started this lowest common denominator. And there were maybe two or three of us of the original lineup that were still there. So, you know, we, we got a chance to leave and, and get out because it just started you know, standards started slipping and it just started, you know, um, uh, sinking to the bottom. So it was really disappointing. But again, a bit before its time, I mean, they, we've been talking in Dublin about, you know, food halls and Dublin City Council and talking about, you know, yeah. will we get the food hall that we we kind of deserve? I mean, obviously, yeah. Fallon and Byrne was a, was a brilliant milestone in terms of, of getting that kind of really fantastic central city-based yeah. beautiful food store that again really supported some amazing suppliers and showcased and yeah. you know obviously with Sheridan's Cheese and great great standalone stores but you know it's 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 just it, exactly as you said there was just this massive transformation in terms of the food scene and um, that there has been over the, the last kind of 10-20 years and it's it's just brilliant yeah. you know it is absolutely brilliant it sort of democratizes food um, and again, just lifts the bar uh, across the country as to, to how things can be food wise. It's 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 a uh, it's an interesting thing as well because, like the the food hall now, I don't know if you mark, but it really bums me out now that it's a deals with a Z. Like oh, all that creativity, I, and now we're I have to walk by like this every time. That's where we're we're we're, uh, we're resigned to. Uh, even the Leo Burdocks, I believe, is gone uh, out of there. I think you're right. I think up. you're right. Yeah, because they were there for a bit. But yeah, uh, yeah it's really, it, it's, it's a sort of, it, it, it's sad to see how the circle is, has gone. But as yeah. I said, I walked down because we, we were, we're in Arnott. So we were around the corner. But yeah. I, I do walk along Lower Liffey Street there and just kind of sad, sad yeah. to, to look in the window. It's a pity. Um, but yeah, so you actually, you, you touched on something that we would uh, love to cover as well on, on the Shark Pod because it is about business, but it's also about lifestyle design as well. Um, mm. We try to get that balance uh, right with our guests. Uh, and it, it's interesting that we have somebody on the line here that has a little bit of experience in both, right? <laughs> so uh, you talked about the the, yeah. the unfortunate uh, diagnosis that you, that you had. Um, yes. And then this kind of a keto, uh, ketogenic um, transition, or transition is the wrong word, but like the... Uh, you know opening up your mind to that type of uh, eating as well I'm interested to see like was that a, the doctor driving that was that your own research I know it, you know some people have different uh, views on that but where did that come from yeah so I I, um, I had read a really brilliant book uh, called it was anti-cancer and it was by a doctor Servan Schreiber and and I had read that in about 2005 or 2006 so it was a really good book that came out it was just about, um, now he developed a brain tumor and subsequently died, but um, it's a bad advertisement, but uh, he had uh, written this fant fantastic book and it was looking at all different diets and lifestyles and really how negative a lot of the medical community was um, to the idea of nutrition and, you know, trying to better your outcome through um, an improved or supported particular diet and uh, I was just really fascinated by the book so when I got diagnosed I, I went I was like right I'm rereading that book and I went straight back to that and was looking at it and 
just the benefits of herbs and spices and different approaches and different diets all around the world um, and so on. And then, you know, I, I really tried not to listen to anybody's personal story because I wasn't really interested. And I, again, it's kind of very uh, tunnel visioned in it and went to PubMed and just looked at all the papers and certain themes kept reappearing, which was, you know, glucose and very high blood glucose levels is a problem for cancer patients. Now, okay. that is not the same as saying sugar feeds cancer. It's a lot more complicated. But certainly, an abundance of glucose and really the corresponding insulin response. You know, insulin is a growth factor and a, a growth hormone. And again, just problems. You see paper after paper after paper. Now, none of this was ever discussed with me when I'd go in to uh, meet my medical team, who were all brilliant at what they do, which is surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. But when I said, what do I do? What do I eat? I was handed a copy of the food pyramid. And I looked at it and mm. I was like, are you serious? This is it. This is what you're going to tell me to eat. And of course, there isn't, the, the food pyramid is promoting a high carb diet, no matter what way you look at it. It's, sure. it's you know, 55 to 65, depending on, on, on what it percent carbohydrates. And the thing is that those turn into blood glucose. They then require a lot of insulin to be metabolized. And all the published papers are pointing to this being a problem. So for me, there was this massive disconnect. And I thought, okay. Um, and really, time I met my co-author, Patricia Daly, who's a nutritional therapist, registered with Bant. Uh, she's a Swiss uh, native. And she had come through cancer and, and okay. um, had, had gone through conventional treatment, but had sort of run out of options uh, for herself, uh, had given up her career in finance, started tr studying nutritional therapy, went down a very much a, a fruit and vegetable and whole grain approach to her diet. The, the tumor was, was really not loving this okay. <laughs> approach okay. at all. Uh, and then she came across some German papers about ketogenic diet and so on, which had originally been discovered uh, as a way to uh, assist children with epilepsy who were drug resistant because they did notice back in the 1930s, I think, um, that if you fasted uh, people for long periods of time, their seizures would actually reduce. Now, you can't fast children indefinitely. Okay. So actually, this diet was created because it's a, a fast mimicking diet. So she started the research in that, did incredibly well, and she has been on that ever since. And that's very much maintained uh, her, her good health. And when I had a consultation with her, certainly it, it seemed to me very clear that uh, eating a, a high-carbohydrate diet was probably not a good idea for my particular situation, which was breast cancer, estrogen positive, and so on. And so I really went on a low carb diet. I really started to up my intake of certain herbs and spices and look at the different combinations of food that symbiotically could improve um, the overall, the sort of synergistic uh, effect. And I guess we got on so well and we, we had an hour consultation that actually ended up being a three hour chat. And we both said, we need to do something. We need to write something and write a cookbook that really reflects this information. So, was a bestseller over here, did really well in the US, nice. amazing endorsements by oncologists, scientists, uh, dietitians, cancer researchers and everything. The thing is, there's no panacea, you know, it's not to say that diet can cure cancer or anything, it, it's, it's not that, but an appropriate diet uh, that is specific and personalized uh, can support better um, health during treatment and it's just really frustrating I think there's some people that don't want to know and they, they just want to put their head in the sand and eat crisps and, yeah. and watch Netflix all day that's fine if that's yeah. your approach that's grand but even seeing the difference in terms of recommendations for cancer patients about exercise and how light they were back in 2013 and now 2020 the papers are coming out the trials are being done and people are much more confident recommending exercise for cancer patients and for me 
there's a lot of resistance. I've had a lot of fights with uh, certain organizations over here. It's a fight that's going to continue because the nutrition wars are vicious, you know, and, 100%. and you can Whatever, see it on social media. You said it was but, a religion and that's what it kind of feels like, I think, with some of the, the debates go out, goes on. I think oh, it, it's ridiculous. And like for me, it's just like what whatever is, long, you know, whether your diet is vegan or low fat or whatever works for you, as long as it's a well-designed diet and you're aware of the pitfalls of that particular diet. And obviously vegans need to worry about, you know, their iron levels and iodine and all, all sorts of stuff. As long as you're aware of the pitfalls of a particular diet, uh, and you are educated and informed and you're making an informed decision, knock yourself out, you know, but yeah. uh, there's, I just think the science is fascinating. And I just think that, you know, when you look at the trials and you look at the, the, the evidence in terms of the benefits of fasting as well, hugely interesting area of research. Um, and uh, it's really, can we do more to enhance standard care and, and, and conventional care? Can we do more? Because look at the cost. The cost of cancer care is so outrageously high. If we yeah. could do something that made it more effective, we could get people metabolically healthier before they went in. I know in Switzerland, um, you know, they do a full panel. They, they check your gut health and everything because there's this recognition. You are going to respond to treatment much better if your gut health is in, in great nick. So again, it's, it's, but it, it's changing the mentality hugely. And we know prevention is so much better you know, than, than, than the cure. Yeah. But unfortunately, we seem to have this tsunami of type 2 diabetes and all these NCDs that are happening, and a lot of which could be helped by better diet and lifestyle information. But the problem is you have food pyramids that kind of dictate how so many people eat. They're not based on pure science. I mean, that's well established. It's a tug of war between governments and food companies and, and trying to keep everyone sort of happy. But, you know, I think that we should have a number of different food pyramids that take different approaches and support much more of a sort of whole foods approach. That's my rant over. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. What a wonderful <laughs> way to take something that's, you know, some that's, you know, terrible thing and, uh, you know, put something out there. It's going to definitely help. Like, like you said, it may not be a, a panacea, but someone in America might pick up that book and get a few recipes out of it or, or whatever even and that would be exactly some impact, you know? so. exactly I just you know and if, if you're, I've seen seen sort of cancer cookbooks and so and they're, they're filled with really high sugar high sugar high fat which metabolically is like worse combination and really what you know with cancer you want to be trying to kind of cool down the inflammation cool down this and you know yet you have these recipes doing nothing but just putting you know gasoline on a fire and i'm just like going these are smart people that are endorsing this stuff they, they know better and you know i'm not talking about the same with cancer you know cachexia and weight loss is a different kettle of fish and they have different needs and different requirements um and i do recognize there is a frustration i'm sure with the medical community where people come in and they say oh, i'm going to do this diet and i'm going to do that and then it can interrupt treatment and cause different problems but, you know, the war that has, has really taken hold uh, doesn't serve patients well at all. And the thing is, when there is that resistance, people don't share information with their doctors and they go down these rabbit holes and do things, you know, unsupervised uh, on, on, yeah. with poor advice and they get into more trouble. So, you know, I, I think having that open conversation um, is definitely the way to go. And when we look at what happens in the U.S. with functional and integrative medicine, it's it's the way it has to go because yeah. we simply cannot afford the levels of unwell and sick people that are just you know not not getting better it is only going to increase and unless we do more on the prevention side and start kids really early on understanding how to cook how to eat uh, and how to to mind their health through food um i i, I don't see this problem going away and unfortunately it, it took a real you know health scare for me to kind of understand a lot more you know, 40 year propaganda of the low fat machine you know that yeah. was wildly successful they did um, such a good job i think it's everyone has the the, the low fat everything you know it's uh yeah totally it's really and it's, it's it's getting your children to understand to turn over the ingredients look at the back of that see that low fat that zero percent fat yes look how much sugar is there instead yeah and uh it's getting them and you know kids are brilliantly bright about all that stuff and, and they uh, they don't like the wool being pulled over their eyes so educating them about that stuff is hugely important and how does ireland compare to other countries when it comes to diet and things like that 
I, th I think that, you know, it, what's brilliant to see are uh, younger doctors and, say, influencers and, and models understanding that actually good health isn't about, you know, being you know, terribly thin and, and so on, that actually exercise, fitness, health and strength and, and, and good health, those are the sort of attributes that we want to be focusing on, and especially with, with girls who, who can suffer from a lot of, of image issues, certainly in their, in their teens and so on. Um, so I think that's been brilliant to see and also the awareness of how manipulated a lot of images are and stuff and how fake they are. So seeing strength recognized, and I mean, I always say, you know, for me, the most beautiful bodies are athletes bodies you know I look at the tennis players and everything they look so strong and incredible you know so much more attractive and and desirable as, as uh you know rather than than being a, a clothes hanger as it were um so I think it, it's brilliant to see those younger generations and the younger doctors who are coming through who are into it I see doctors who are weightlifting and they're yeah. posting photos and they're they're into keto, they're into low carb, they're into fasting, they're into all this stuff, you know, whether it's gut health or macrobiotics or whatever. So that's really encouraging because that will change because there are so many doctors who just have no interest yeah, whatsoever. A, a, I think you're uh, right with the generational thing because, uh, or even, you know, the, the impact of the the integrative medicine because when i was in canada i went to a doctor there and the experience is completely different so it took me a so while different. when i came home to find a doctor that was exactly what you're talking about like you're talking about um he's the kind of a new generation he wants he's almost intrusive he wants to know so much about how you're living your life um i go to exactly. him once a year and and, and interested in how you sleep i yeah, mean your everything. sleep is so yeah. critical and, and and i don't know if you've read the book um why we sleep the matthew walker book and it's, it's really fascinating but it's kind of sort of one of these funny books you're reading it and you know practically seeing how your life is going to be cut short if you don't have quality sleep which actually makes you not sleep as you're reading the book at yeah. night. <laughs> sort of this, sort of, oh, this book yeah. is backfiring. But um, it is fascinating. And again, just seeing the importance of that, there's the sort of stress factor, all that stuff. And you, you want people to be going to the root cause of the problem. And when you listen to those US doctors and everything, and, and maybe it's it's got so extreme over there, but at least it's it's a cheaper approach uh, and, you know, you'll get the detractor saying, oh, well, there's so much testing and supplements and everything. But it's like, actually, when you look at the cost, it's a billion euro to the exchequer in terms of type 2 diabetes and obesity. And then they, you know, we'll hear statistics as 1.8 in terms of, of malnutrition and poor nutrition. You add those That's figures, crazy. nearly 3 billion, all to do with, with poor eating, lifestyle habits, poor choices and everything. That's a massive amount of money. Two and if we could just even take, could half, <laughs> you know? take half of that, exactly. so. if we could take half of that and do more around prevention, what 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 could we do? It's a it's a really like it's something that we should all be a little bit worried about as well because you know it's uh, there's there's two two ways of looking at this as well. My wife's a, a a teacher and she's seen a change in the last couple of years with lunches mm -hmm. just recently as well, where it's more kind of fruit and vegetables in the lunch, not like when yeah. I was in uh, Mark. Uh, Mark knows my family obviously very well because he's married to my sister but we were a carbohydrate family first that's yeah. why we like to potatoes I mean every every uh, lunchtime was like a lots of you know peanut butter sandwiches like just anything that you know you could put a lot of carbs into Quick that's what we were fast. interested yeah, in yeah exactly exactly but <laughs> um, I mean the mad thing is the kids I mean they, they can just burn off everything and you just watch them there like motoring <laughs> you know and so we like we tend to eat low carb in the house, but I don't allow cereal and and stuff like that in the morning kid you know the kids would have had a sandwich at lunchtime because you you, you have to pick and choose your battles yeah, so i can okay. control dinner i can control breakfast but i can't really control yeah. lunch and you want them to eat something you know but they're they're moving and firing so their ability to tolerate carbohydrates is much more so than a, a 50 year old guy sitting on his rear end at a computer all the time 100%. they're totally different you know and so it's it's finding that that sort of tolerance of, of what you can and and you know, I just, I find that it, it's just, it's so easy. It is so easy to eat cereal in the morning. So easy to eat toast. It is, yeah. And, you know, I spent 40 years basically eating a very high carb, low fat diet thinking yeah. this is fantastic. But I was always, you know, probably a stone heavier, always sort of wanting to go to a nap after eating and stuff. I just, whereas now I do two, three day 
fasts, you know, I, I wow. did a 10 day fast in Germany last year, you know, it, it's just a totally different approach and certainly metabolically much healthier. I, I track my glucose regularly, really interested to know what it's doing and um, have the aura ring as well. So tracking sleep, tracking all that stuff. And um, because, you know, at least you can monitor what you're measuring and just see the impact and seeing what works for you. With the, with, with the, the fasting, this is the, I know a lot of like fasting is becoming more popular and there's, uh, there's lots of um, data coming out where, you know, yeah. uh, the people who are like, even I, I remember hearing that um, the people who lived through the last depression that we might be going into now, we won't go into that, but the last <laughs> depression where there was food restriction, um, those people actually lived longer in the long yeah. term because of that. So, uh, I, I, but what I find interesting is because I've never done uh, anything longer than a, a, not even not even a day just because of flying or something that I didn't want to eat anything that day or whatever. But what's the mental attitude like? Does it does it get in on you after day one? Are you does do you have demons coming after you? What's the, what's the no? I, I have to say I. It, if I'm sitting at home, like here working for, I can't do it. Like it's really bad because usually I'm writing emails about food. I'm writing menus. I'm yeah, writing, yeah, you know, so course, it's yeah. really hard. <laughs> but if you're on the run, it works really well because often, you know, you're you're jamming and meeting after meeting and meeting, and it's, you know, it's a whole lunches for him. You just don't have time. But it works a lot better if you are fat adapted. So if you are eating a, a kind of low carb diet, um, it's much. It, very difficult to fast if you're eating a high carb diet because the problem is you're on these roller coasters with your your blood glucose so if you're fat adapted in any way you can and, and it's about experimenting so i used to just do you know make sure that i was doing like at least a 13 hour fast at night from night time to the morning then i'd often find i'm actually just not that hungry in the morning anyway um, but you're always told breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Well, who yeah. came up with that? Cereal companies. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, is it the most important meal of the day? Maybe not. So, again, it's listening to your body and, and trusting that that intuition. And so for me, I just started skipping breakfast and then maybe have some soup and, and so on. And then uh, dinner. But, you know, you find that sometimes eating earlier is better. You sleep better. You, you you digest your food. Having a walk after dinner, again, that kind of postprandial thing. Again, you know, when you're looking at the glucose monitors is to see what's happening with your food, seeing how different food spikes. Um, you know, I could eat like some pre-lentils, even a small amount, and my blood glucose will stay pretty high for even a longer lentils, period. Um, whereas I'd like you know, I remember stealing some chips off one of my children um, and everything, and it shot up, but it came down very quickly. Again, there's this corresponding effect of what that does. So um, I, I really into the fasting now, and I get great clarity. And as I said, I, 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 was in, I did a 10-day fast last year, um, which sounds hideous until you do it but you you just i finished my master's over there and everything and it was it's really amazing very enlightening and it's at a clinic where there's people that do 21 day fast and stuff and they're all in their 70s and oh they look God. amazing they, amazing so it's it's such a it's it's such a great thing but hard to do at home but i find the 24 hour fast at home very doable and um, have a little coffee with a little cream during the day and that just kind of takes the edge off of any any hunger and, and just stay busy and it it, it 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 does feel good but it really doesn't suit everyone and that's the important thing if if if, if you hate it don't <laughs> yeah. force it yeah i don't know mark we might give that a go we'll, uh we'll, i don't we'll know luke, luke gets luke gets angry when he's hungry so uh <laughs> yeah, i don't want to be around angry. Yeah. no <laughs> that's that's the thing well that's where the fat adapter comes in yeah. you, you need to be you need to be kind of low yeah. carb and, and eating more fat Otherwise, you will find it really hard. You'll be <laughs> the, breaking uh, up with Mark. It took, it took me. <laughs> He'll dump you as a brother-in-law. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it, it took me a long time to oh. kind of get that under control. I I started with the kind of like uh, I was I don't know twenty three or twenty four. That's the first time I really started taking my diet uh, uh, serious because I was I I was playing sports six days a week until I was that age and. It, nothing really seemed to it didn't seem to matter as much and then when I, yeah. actually when i start working in uh in finance where i'm sitting around all day uh and you know a lot you know the food choices weren't weren't great but once i get i'm i would do really well with restriction so if there's a rule and i can't have that or i've got a list of foods that i eat during the week or something like that that okay. works for me rule-based 
you know, moderation is not really my. Mark, Mark will tell me, <laughs> tell you all about this. Moderation is not really my game, but that's okay. I think, like you said, everyone's different. You got to find out what's the. Uh, What's the, you have the, to the figure it out exactly and what works and it's like you know for exercise i'm really good if it's if it's kind of aggressive and competitive and sort of like for me the worst thing is to go and run down the start like i i do everything i can not to do it but you know it's cheap fast quick and, and a good blast but like i i will fight every step like until i'm out the door and even then i'm pounding just going i hate this i hate this i hate yeah. this but I will do it because I know the benefit, but like, I, I, I don't love us at all, you know, but they're yeah, doing an hour of boxing and actually sparring and everything. Love us. Yeah, you know, it's a little so more fun. You've got to find what works for you. Yeah. I like to have fun when I'm exercising as well. I think Mark likes to embrace the grind. as he says first, that the, yeah, <laughs> I'd be fairly <laughs> moderate. And, and that's, that's probably, that could be a bad thing as well. Cause I eat, I moderately eat, uh, chocolate and sweets. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm still eating it, but I'm just spreading it out. The, the, yeah. the only thing I've really done is a I've done a paleo based diet for months at a time, and I actually found that I felt great on that. What's what's your there's different opinions on it? Paleo great. On? I mean, I, I honestly like for me, I it's it's as long as it's a well designed diet, you yeah. know, I think I think it's fine, you know, and it's you'll you'll hear people doing all carnivore diets now. That's a sort of big thing in the low carb community and everything. So it's like hundred yeah. percent meat. And, you know, for particular conditions, uh, some people say, seem to be doing thriving on it now, long term, I don't know, and, and certainly there haven't been long term studies on it. But for sure, blast, something like that that's that extreme probably does have an impact and, and, and thingy. I just don't think it'd be very nice, yeah. you know. You gotta to live eat. your life a little bit as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Mark. So. We're coming up on that time. Like time flies on these uh, on these podcasts. I know, I see. Yeah, it does. It and does. I, we want to be respectful of your time as well. We do have a bit of a tradition here on the Shark Pod. Uh, Mark's got a, a list of. Uh, we call it sometimes it's called the lightning round, quick fire quick question. Fire. I don't know. You, you don't have to be quick. Quick answers. I don't know. Mark, we, we don't have any rules, but Mark's just gonna blast out some stuff here. Perfect. No, like it's it's more uh, kind of thinking quick but you can elaborate where you want okay, okay so start off nice and simple do you have any apps that you use on your phone uh the most um i'm i'm not brilliant with the old apps now, i have to say um so yeah i'm trying to think what i have do you I use have, any well, trackers the, for your health or anything or yeah sorry just thinking now so the aura ring which i have here so that tracks sleep it tracks heart rate variability resting heart rate um, and exercise. So I do like that. I'm a bit of a nerd about, uh, a bit obsessed about sleep. Um, so I track that. And then I have just started using a continuous glucose monitor. So rather than testing once or twice a day, this stays on for two weeks and I can actually track it. So these are great if you really want to see, because I try and do either did the 10 day fast last year or um, I'll try and do full blown keto for about two weeks. And again, just get that kind of reset uh, is really good. Rest of the time, I eat low carb most of the time. Um, but yeah, those would be the two. So I'm, I'm, I would health trackers. Yes. But everything else is a bit useless. <laughs> that brings me on to my next one. What, what's your favorite social media and why? Uh, Whether it's like, for you or for the business, or yeah, I like. I do think Instagram's quite nice, so it seems a kind of friendly place. Uh, Twitter, Twitter can get a bit hot and heavy. So. I know everyone says the same thing with Twitter. I'm not. I, I'm just not aggressive enough to get out there and, uh, and debate. Like we had our our last uh, our last guest has basically built his career on Twitter. You know, he's a big podcaster as well, and he gets yeah. a lot of his guests from Twitter and stuff. But he's very like, opinionated. Is is great about <laughs> politics and stuff. But I, I'm just not into politics yeah, as much so it's as hard uh, for me. A to lot of people. Get in there. Yeah, I tell you what, the Twitter is quite good because we went for the keto kitchen, and actually the the community there is quite good. So I think for for looking at published papers and stuff like that from a health point of view, it could be really handy. But when the, the wars, the the nutrition wars starts, it's like oh god, yeah. okay, whatever. Mm. But um, yeah, it can be interesting and pithy. But Instagram certainly. From a kind of food point of view, I, I like looking at that and, and, and everything. But, you know, with all these things, you do have to, you sometimes come out of them feeling worse. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's the same as when you're flicking through a fabulous magazine, you know, travel magazine of all these wonderful places that you think I'll never be able mm. to afford. Yeah. You can sometimes end up feeling a bit misery guts yeah. afterwards. So you you do have to remind yourself, it's just look at it, enjoy it, but don't yeah. take it too much to heart. 
I use it for inspiration a lot with, with other artists and paintings. And yeah. then, then 20 minutes has gone. And I'm just thinking I could have started a really good painting in that, in that 20 minutes. <laughs> totally. And I'm like, oh, God, I could have done a whole yeah. yoga class or something. So, yeah. yes, there is an element of going down the rabbit hole, which uh, I think you do need to be disciplined. And again, I would tend to have a rule that I, I tend to shut my phone off at about eight o'clock at night. Um, and that's a good rule to have. That's I think. it. Yeah, because it does interrupt your sleep. You are looking at it. Just turn the goddamn thing off. So I haven't managed to. The twenty-two-year-old nearly, nearly <laughs> with me, not yeah. quite, but it definitely has a, a good impact. And I figure if if somewhere's burnt down, you know, that's what the insurance is for. Somebody will knock on the door or something. Just turn yeah. the phone off. Just yeah. turn it off. Cool. Um, what time do you get up at in the morning, and what time do you go to sleep at night? So when I'm when life is normal, usually anytime from sort of five a.m. till seven a.m. So anytime, often around six, half six would probably be normal. Tend to not sleep in the weekends either, but I do go to bed early, like so half nine. I'm kind of heading upstairs uh, if I'm in bed before ten o'clock. Lights off. Very hey, happy. Listen to this, Mark. This, you got to talk to my talk to my boy Mark over here. He needs to sleep a lot more. Anyway, go on, Mark. Go on, Mark. <laughs> I'll say you. You need to read the book. That why I'll get we you sleep. the book. Matthew Walker. It's, I get yeah. so much done in the uh, at night time, Dominic. That's when well, I do all he, my painting. In fairness, though, he does acknowledge that and actually sort of makes the point that teenagers and everything, their circadian rhythm has kind of gone bonkers. They'd be much better off actually starting school at 12 noon. Uh, it would probably do much better. So there are people that are absolute night owls and do better, but for the majority of us. Yeah, I'm we, certainly uh, not a teenager anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hey, next question. If you could do business anywhere, anywhere else in the world, where would it be? Oh goodness, um, I don't know. God, it's because it's so so nice and sort of small over here in a way. I sometimes think, wonder what it would be like doing business in the states, and if I'd like stayed somewhere like New York or whatever. Did you live there for long? Different. Or did you I, ever live we, there? We were we were born out in the Bahamas, so we lived that kind of side of the world, and then nice. I worked over in the states uh, a, a good bit. But um, yeah, I sometimes wonder would it have been easier, harder, or what it is? Because yeah, people kind of do you know exceptionally well over there, you know. Yeah. So it's like, what would be the equivalent? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know what? Every everyone who has this uh, this type of business career, uh, they usually say America as well. I think it's. Mm. It's it's what we look at when it comes to entrepreneurship and stuff. You can if you got uh, a good idea, you can roll that out to St. Louis. You can roll it out to yeah. you know all over the country. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's uh, the thing. Yeah, we, we it's, do it's, have that kind of smaller. We just have a small country, you know. We are teeny tiny. <laughs> so funny. We think we're we think we're great as well. We're the size of Birmingham, but we, we want to like demand EU laws and all. I love that. Well, right? we do punch above our weight in yeah. terms of artists and singers and musicians and all that. You know, so yeah. we do, we the writers especially. So I think we we're allowed we're allowed to be a little bit cocky about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody kind of knows everybody, and that could be a, a good thing as well. Yeah. yeah. For business. So Mark, um, let's do one more. Uh, and then we'll, we'll make this one a, a, a big one and then and then we'll wrap it up, all right? Okay, two more, right? Two more. <laughs> um, okay. Is it what you know or who you know? Ooh, I think at the start, ooh, that's a hard one um, because actually what I would say is as you, as you go through business, you whittle down the people around you, you know, in terms of good solicitors, good advisors, good people like that. And you do have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find the, the princes, as it were, of your professional life uh, and princesses. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd say maybe at the start, what you know, and then then a bit of who you know, and then maybe more, more what you know as well. It does it, different different times uh you you need different skill sets and stuff so um but it does take a while to find those you know um yeah. and no, that makes sense community can kind of be a benefit okay last one what advice would you give to the 18 year old dominie to not have had such a chip on her shoulder about not going to college um and i suppose to have had more confidence at that age you know i think uh, never. I think I just imagined I'd sort of get married and that would be it and have children. <laughs> I don't. And then I started working and it just worked and I, I just got such a bug for it. So 
Um, yes, I think the, the difficult student, the pain in the arse student in class, a typical entrepreneur, you know, typical nice. entrepreneur, that would be recognized now, wasn't back then. So I'd say, yeah, don't don't be worried about being such a pain in the arse in school. You'll You'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good advice to give to anyone at any age. <laughs> Just don't worry so much. Uh, I know it's hard. It's easier easier said than done in, in these strange times in the, that we're in. Um, but uh, Dominique, it's been an absolute joy having you on the Shark Pod today. Um, oh, thank you we, guys, and I well think, done for getting it started and everything. It's uh, it's 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 brilliant. It's, we only got um, through like two points here. I had like eight things. Maybe we'll have a chat uh, down down the. So much more I have written down here as well. So uh, uh, we'll have a follow up. Yeah. yeah, maybe a follow up. <laughs> all right, perfect. So thanks very much, and um, this will be out. Uh, I'll let you know when this is out and all that type of stuff. Um, but it do be and we'll, we'll blast it all over. So uh, anything we can do to support. But uh, you're very kind to have me on. I really much appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Very thanks, much. Emil.